Welcome, everyone, to a slightly different episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Today's episode is neither new nor a rerun. It's a bonus episode. And the reason is that I'm taking the second half of this week off, and it's my birthday. Which is not to say that I'm taking the second half of this week off because it's my birthday. Longtime listeners will maybe have noticed that that hasn't happened in years past. Uh, The truth is I'm taking the second half of this week off because it's my mother's birthday. Because 36 years ago, I was born on my mother's birthday and I've been stealing her birthday thunder ever since. But this year is a, a big, round, interesting uh, kind of birthday for her. So we're doing a family trip and uh, a whole birthday celebration. So that's what's happening this week. For you, I have this bonus episode, which uh, the members of the show heard a week and a half ago or so. Tur- turns out it happened to be a, a double bonus. So, you know, for each episode, I usually throw out another 20 or 30 minutes of, of bonus clips for the members. And uh, this one, I just decided to do two in one. So I have additional clips for you today on Brexit, the episode I did on Brexit, as well as uh, some some more details of the modern lives of native peoples. So enjoy these and we'll be back to our regularly scheduled new episodes next week. In the movie, Cummings bemoans the lack of critical analysis about the state of British society and beyond. A million important questions to be asked of our nation, our species, our planet. And no one's asking the right ones. British national identity, or more specifically English national identity, was always defined by the fact that we are an island nation. Matthew Goodwin is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Kent and author of National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. He says the right questions were actually staring us in the face all along. Britain's entire post-war relationship with the EU was defined by... Britain being the awkward partner. It had opt-outs of key things such as the euro single currency. Euro skepticism, you might say, is in its DNA. We were never really fully committed to the European project in the way that the French or the Germans or the Italians were. Goodwin explains that from 1995 to 2016, there was actually consistent and widespread public support for dramatically rethinking Britain's relationship with the EU. And groupthink really led us to the opposite conclusion, that Remain was always the clear favourite. If Brexit was a backlash, you say, it wasn't a backlash to immigration per se, but to a larger issue, the perceived overreach by liberal democracy in the form of the European Union and a perceived loss of sovereignty and national identity, all of which sentiments were hiding in plain view. The Leave vote didn't magically materialize from nowhere, and it wasn't just a bunch of racist ruffians. Well, I think one of the ignored elements of the Brexit debate is the diversity that existed within the Leave electorate. And if you look at actually who ended up voting Leave, there was basically an alliance of pretty affluent middle-class conservatives who were predominantly wanting a restoration of national sovereignty. Uh, The European Union, in its manifestations, can impose laws on us which we do not want. 
can refuse to repeal laws which we think have outlived their usefulness. There were white working class, traditionally left-wing Labour voters who were more anxious about what they saw as the sort of high levels of migration and rapid change at the local level. There's lots of Muslims, lots of people around here which are taking our jobs. One in three of Britain's black and minority ethnic voters opted for leave and recent research suggests that they were unhappy with the way in which our migration policy gave preference to people from within Europe at the expense of some of their networks and relatives outside of Europe. The UK need to be a separate country. People like myself paying tax. If somebody else in Europe, they don't working and eating my money, why? And also, there was a large degree of support for leave among Britain's pensioners who came of age in a very different period when Britain was a global superpower and when it wasn't so closely aligned to the European Union. Leavers wanted to talk about identity and sovereignty and community and Remain were just talking to them about GDP, the national economy and financial costs and benefits. The prevailing media narrative is that 17 million gullible and resentful voters who don't understand markets or governance or economics or law were tricked into consigning the UK into isolation and irrelevance. But you say that such blind adherence to the march of liberal democracy does a disservice to legitimate grievances. Where Leave were particularly effective was picking up on that sense among voters that they are no longer really being recognised or being given a voice in the political system. And Fukuyama famously argued in his book, The End of History, that liberal democracy really did one of two things, aside from offering the capitalist system and developing a very effective economic model, it actually also satisfied people's struggle for recognition. It gave them a sense of voice. I think what many leavers felt, particularly by the time that we got to 2016, was that actually nobody in the political system was listening to them. And certainly in our book, we make the point that one in two working class voters in Britain had concluded that actually they weren't being listened to in Britain's political system. They certainly weren't being listened to in the European Union's political system. And I think partly, therefore, the vote to leave the EU became something much more powerful, which was an attempt by voters to get their views, to get their values back onto the political radar. Now, the the occasion for your article is uh, your own personal astonishment that amid the current post-Brexit chaos, to this day, few in the media or government or the academy have truly reflected at how it got into this mess. They see it, you write, as a spasm of naked, ignorant, and malign populism, not as really a historical inevitability. Your piece was a bit of screed against that kind of self-validation and arrogance. Many people, not only in the academy, but also large parts of Britain's media, struggled to make sense of the vote to leave and where it had come from. Our media is still incredibly London-centric. Many people who are reporting on the mood in the nation have gone through Oxford or Cambridge and often private schools. And I think the shock that met the leave vote was partly a reflection of that, that we, we just simply 
don't have a media debate, we don't have a national debate that's truly representative of the country. And that perhaps also explains why so many people expected Remain to win. We're having this conversation in the midst of chaos. Parliament has just not just voted down, but crushed Prime Minister May's Brexit plan. And two months from B-Day, there's no mechanism for any kind of soft landing into whatever the new reality is. All the indications are instead for a catastrophic crash. There is talk of a referendum to reverse the first referendum, but you believe that would surely be catastrophic. Why? Pragmatically, I can understand how we end up having a second referendum because there is no majority in the House of Commons for a Brexit deal. Mrs. May has lost her deal. Uh, She was defeated heavily and her opponents do not have a majority for an alternative route. There are many problems with that, however. The first is we have no idea what we'll put on the ballot paper. Would it be Mrs. May's deal versus a no deal? Would it be Mrs. May's deal versus remaining in the European Union? Would it be Mrs. May's deal versus some other option? And the reason that's problematic is when you survey voters, they don't really know even now what's in Mrs. May's deal. So this is a very low information environment and referendums are supposed to be really only introduced when there's a very clear binary question. Are you in? Are you out? But secondly, I think it's problematic because it's going to send a pretty troubling message. We have to remember what happened before the first referendum. A lot of blue-collar workers in industrial towns had simply stopped voting and they'd been giving up on politics. They'd concluded that when it came to these big issues like Britain's relationship with Europe, like immigration, like their role and their voice within the political system, that it wasn't worth voting. My worry when it comes to the prospect of a second referendum is actually we send those voters quite a worrying message, which is that actually, even though you came out and voted leave and you tried to reclaim that sense of voice, you made the wrong decision and you're going to have to vote all over again. By asking those voters to vote again, effectively, until they give the right answer, are we not just pouring gasoline on the sense among many voters that backlashing is actually the only way to get things done? Matt, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed listening to your show from London. Matthew Goodwin is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Kent and co-author of National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. Once we ruled over an empire So it feels like some kind of defeat to comply with rules drawn up by strangers. The left case against the EU and the left vision of what a Brexit should be, is Corbyn and Labour Party articulating that? No. <laughs> so what are they articulating and what's wrong with the way they're doing it? Like I said to you uh, originally, a few minutes ago, Corbyn is navigating a minefield. No, I, I get uh, the politics of it, but w- in terms of policy, what they want, what do you want to see that you're not seeing? What they are advocating uh, at the moment is a situation in which the Labour, the, the Britain, would um, would form a new customs union with the European Union, not the existing one, but a customs union with the European Union, and it will maintain. 
close connections with a single market. And that's the position that they're officially taking. I think this is uh, problematic. I'm not in principle against the customs union, personally, if Britain would have a say in how the customs, customs union operated uh, in the future as well, not, not, not passively be part of that, because obviously a, a socialist government in Britain would want to strike its own trade deals, of course, and the customs union might uh, constrain us from doing it. Uh, I certainly would not be in favour of Britain maintaining a close relationship with the single market, however, because the single market in Europe is the most um, rigid mechanism for the imposition of neoliberalism uh, across Europe. I think the Labour Party is making a mistake in that. Uh, just, um, just for people who are maybe a little new to the term neoliberalism, just be a couple of specifics. Neoliberalism is the idea that uh, market knows best, uh, private is best, uh, public is bad, uh, state intervention is bad, um, the world should be run in the interests of private entrepreneurs who uh, are the ultimate uh, deciders of everything that should be so. Um, this is the kind of basic uh, understanding of how the economy runs that has caused the world to become what it is the last 40 years, right? This the disaster that's now unfolding all, all around us. Um, the Labour Party in this country is the best chance we have of delivering a blow at this. The Labour Party is very important right now, and a Labour government is of paramount importance because if it comes to power, I don't know if it's likely, but if it comes to power and delivers a radical program, such as the one that I know that they're working on, if it does that and it applies it, and if it hits neoliberalism where it should be hit between the eyes, as it were, and we have a program that is actually implemented, the benefits across the world would be enormous. There would be, it would be a concrete demonstration that you can go against this ideology. You can hit the, uh, the rich and the financial elites where it hurts. Which includes uh, a real build out of the public sector and certain nationalizations and uh, a really a structural changes to the economy. What is necessary in this country, which the Labour Party understands, and it had it in its manifesto, the Electoral Manifesto of 2017, and I hope that the new manifesto, whenever that comes about, will be more radical. What this country needs is, in this, uh, in this order, uh, active industrial policy that will basically change the balance between uh, finance and the rest of the economy and strengthen industry and manufacturing to create good jobs with uh, strong productivity growth. So that will not happen without industrial policy. Uh, that must go hand in hand with public property, public ownership of uh, uh, significant areas of the economy. In other words, in particular, uh, railways, um, uh, energy, water, there is, a, there is a strong uh, majority uh, among the British public for that kind of thing, public ownership over that. And also, it should go hand in hand with public ownership of uh, key banks, the formation of a national investment bank, and controls over the other banks, the private banks, including uh, capital controls, so that people cannot take their money freely in and out of the country and speculate uh, on, the back, uh, on the backs of everybody else. That package is fundamental to transforming the economy in a green direction, may I also say, because an industrial policy such as this um, will be capable of being in, uh, environmentally uh, friendly the way we want it to be. And is that, this possible within the, if Britain were to stay in the not. EU, can you have this program? Absolutely not. That's exactly the point. Absolutely not. The EU will not tolerate that. It will not tolerate that because 
it will have uh, it will have restrictions on the degree uh, to which the state can intervene and on how the state can intervene uh, in terms of public property, in, in terms of state aid, in terms of public procurement. These are all fundamental mechanisms allowing uh, the public interest to manifest itself in the economy. The EU will not allow that. The EU is in favor of competition, so it will not facilitate that facilitate that at all. And moreover, the EU, of course, will not allow for capital controls, which are necessary because the EU believes in free movement of capital and it has it, 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 it enshrines it in the single market. And in addition to that, of course, politically, the European Union will oppose any radical left government. You can rest assured of that. There is no doubt at all. That the, the experience of Greece teaches us that if a radical left government, such as the one that we want Corbyn to form, such as this country needs, if that was formed and it confronted the, it was, it was within the European Union, the European Union would oppose it tooth and nail. Uh, or, or anybody who doesn't see that doesn't understand the European Union. So uh, a socialist program such as Britain needs, a radical program such as Britain needs, and actually a program against neoliberalism cannot be implemented within the European Union. It just cannot. The fact that the left cannot see it is astounding to me, but then that is the state of the European left. That's exactly, that's exactly the problem of um, Europeanism that I mentioned here. That's the disease that has afflicted much of the European left. Mary, uh, you've written in your column in The Independent that uh, this is a pivotal moment for in British history. It's on par with two significant stories that you've covered as a foreign correspondent. Explain. Well, what I said was that, um, indeed, this was a pivotal moment in the UK because it seemed to me that practically every pillar um, of, the, of what makes up and is fundamental to the United Kingdom was suddenly in flux and in play in a way that, you know, not only do I not remember in my lifetime, but I can't think of another time um, going back, say, for a century of British history where that was true. Um, and in that sense, in that sense only, I compared it to the sense that I had when I was covering the collapse of the Soviet Union and when I was covering what later became known as the tide election in the United States. Um, because in bo- on both of those, um, those questions, on both of what was happening, you had no idea of what was going to happen next, of what the outcome was going to be. Everything around you was in complete flux, and there was no there was no recipe, there was no certainty about what was going to happen. And yet, what was going to happen was actually going to dictate the whole shape of the immediate future and probably into the long term. And I think that's true of what's happening in the UK today. So the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, then the Bush-Gore tide election in 2000, that was the other one. Uh, so, in a way, this is like a profound existential moment for Britain. Uh, Mary? No, I, I, I would agree. Um, and I think one of the things that's maybe slightly regrettable is that there's been so much emphasis um, over the last year, really, but especially over the last few months, on the small print and the, the business of procedure. And all these things are very important, but they've tended to blot out the really bigger picture, which is what I was talking about, this gigantic uncertainty that everything, um, from the party political structure to the um, constitutional arrangements to the union of the United Kingdom, um, everything is in play. 
Yeah. Tim, I was struck by a piece by a chap named Paul Mason writing in The New Statesman, and he said that what's playing out in the UK is, is kind of the same culture war as what's playing out in the US, and we'll stu- soon have a segment on, on the government shutdown in Washington. I mean, do you see any parallels between Brexit and Trump, Tim? I do, and there's been interesting polling in Britain which suggests that people now have more loyalty, or a lot of people have more loyalty to remain or leave than they do to the Tories or Labour. Well, that's interesting. So that's splintering the major parties. Fascinating. Yeah, and I think I feel the same. I would much rather we left the European Union than we had a Conservative government, you know, and I say that as a lifelong Conservative. <laughs> and <laughs> Mary and I, under your excellent chairmanship, um, Tom, have had, I hope, a civilised discussion today, but Mary, I hope, will agree that a lot of the discussion about Brexit has been incredibly ugly between the two sides. There's a lack of tolerance, lack of empathy, a lack of generosity. And, of course, that's exactly an echo of what we see in America, as you asked, Tom. Yeah, and, and I think one Mary. of the one of the other really interesting things is that um, there's a total um, openness um, among Britons when you interview them, when you talk to people. Very often they begin their first sentence is, "Well, of course, I voted Remain or I voted Brexit," um, and that's something people are really upfront about. And so this business of loyalty to one side or the other, you know, it's very, very clear. It's very out there. Yes, and that's why you hear people say that if you had another referendum, it would divide the country more than at any time since the 17th century. And now switching gears to Native people, we're going to start with an AJ Plus mini documentary. We can't think of a single reservation in the state that doesn't have some sort of story. Montana is huge and has a huge native population. I think it's easier for people to get away with it. I could go missing. I could be, you know, I could be murdered any, you know, because it doesn't matter, especially for indigenous women, like your age. It doesn't matter, like, where you are in life. Like, it just happened. I want to believe that Ashley is still alive. This has been a part of your life every day for the last 14 months. Yes, this is, this is my life now, it seems like. Whenever we have a chance, we go search. And sometimes it's just, just me going search, just, just by myself. Imagine going missing here you're looking at just one small part of Blackfeet Reservation, which sits on 1.5 million acres of land. That's larger than the size of Delaware. Kimberly's sister Ashley went missing here last June. She disappeared without a trace, last seen at the foot of Divide Mountain on the border of National Glacier Park. How many times have you and your family searched this place? Searched this place. Huge. I'm doing it because my love for my sister. I'm getting all emotional because I miss my sister so much. Nearly half of the missing person cases in Montana are Native women, 
even though native people make up just 6% of the population. The numbers scream crisis and begs the question, why is this happening and what's being done about it? The answer, we learned, is a tangled mess. I've heard that a few instances, you know, like, if you're going to commit a crime, you should do it on a reservation, especially if you're non-native, because there's really no way for you to pay any consequences. Why are native women disappearing without a trace? Maybe because we're an easy target, because we live in such a rural places on reservations, and the lack of law enforcement there, and because we do live in poverty here, it makes you angry. Why us? Why are we not important to people? Why isn't our girls on these national news stations? Last year, the Senate passed a resolution designating May 5 a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in honor of Hannah Harris, a Native woman killed on a reservation in Montana. Montana's lawmakers are also trying to pass bills that would help fund and expedite investigations into missing person cases involving Native women. Ivan and Ivy McDonald are local Native filmmakers who have been documenting this crisis for more than a year and a half. They believe that's not enough. There's small fixes here and there, but there really is no big structural change, which is needed. I mean, I always, I feel that if legislators aren't willing to fill these cracks, then they're complicit. Indigenous people have to find their own justice, because no one else is going to give it to us. Where we're sort of like, you know, yelling and screaming for the crisis to be heard, but it's kind of only a whisper outside of our communities. This is right off of Highway 2 on the CSKT Reservation. We participated in a search for Jermaine Charlo. So we searched for a good, yeah, like search like four or three hours. Just to get an idea of scale, if you were to put dots on a map of the state of Montana, where all of these stories are, what would that look like? I think it would just be covered. There's stories of women who have been found on this highway, you know, just from Missoula to here. Anywhere with Indigenous women, I think it happens. This is what that would look like. Instead of a dot out of respect, we're using the first letter of the name of every single Native woman in Montana who went missing just from January to September 2018. This data was painstakingly collected by Anita Lucchese, a Cheyenne woman scholar and cartographer putting together a database of MMIW, or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. By her count, the number of Native women missing in Montana just this year is at 32. Scan the Montana Department of Justice for a similar list, and some of the women are literally faceless. For the most part, we're seen as invisible by um, the nation. A lot of times when it comes to murdered and missing Native women, we don't know the circumstances. It's just easy to fall off the radar yeah. around here. Yes. Lucy Simpson has been doing advocacy work for Native issues for decades. She says Native women fall through one crack after another in a deeply broken system. First, the violence is almost inevitable. Four out of five Native women will experience it, and worse, they are murdered at ten times the national average. Then, when the violence happens, there are no resources to deal with it. Federal grant dollars barely make it to Indigenous groups and community programs. And even worse, many murder and missing Native women cases get tossed around like a hot potato because of jurisdiction issues.
So technically, if just inside this little boundary, if someone was to commit a crime, a non-native on the reservation, there wouldn't be any ability for the tribe to prosecute or sort of investigate, depending on the kind of like the level of the crime on the reservation border, there's always this idea of, well, who do we call? Do we call state? Do we call county? Do we call tribal? Do we call federal? There's really this kind of jurisdictional maze where you don't know who to, who, who to turn to. Is it hard to drive around the, the town where your sister should be here? Yes, it is. I'm always so used to coming back to Browning and Ashley being here. Are you prepared for your sister's case to go unresolved? I'm prepared to keep pushing. And we're, one day we'll find Ashley. We'll get our answers. Even if I have to look for 80 years, I'll look my whole life if I have to. My sister is important. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what your interest is here tonight? Sure. Good day to you all. <clears throat> My name is Tim Raynon, and I'm a member of the Puyallup tribe. As Jossie has said, uh, we uh, got involved in this issue on uh, January 28th, 2016, when one of our members, Jacqueline Sawyers, was shot and killed by the Tacoma Police Department. And uh, from that point on, we decided we were going to do everything within our power to make sure that other families, other communities, particularly other tribal communities, didn't have to go through what we went through. That that death at the hands of the Tacoma Police Department really shook our entire community. Um, we're an urban tribe, and, and we deal with uh, the police department uh, often, you know. Our, our members are, are uh, unfortunately having to deal with the police uh far too too often and uh so when that, when that happened to Jackie it really it really uh, shook our community and so we decided to uh do something about it we uh, got together <clears throat> with members of the community and we rallied we the, the, you know the family uh, Jackie's family uh, Lisa Earl and and uh, James Wright one of my fellow council members and, and Chester Earl you know, they came together with with a bunch of folks from the community, and and we we, we supported each other. They started Justice for Jackie, um, Lisa, Jackie's mom. You know, one of her mantras throughout this whole thing was "Justice for Jackie is justice for all," mm. and that was our mantra throughout this entire this this, this entire last three years. So we got together with uh, some community members, and we. We first attempted to go to the, the, the to Washington D.C. and get some help from uh, the Department of Justice. We didn't find mm. any justice there. No. They, they told us we had to come up with all kinds of evidence and, and demonstrate that the, the Tacoma Police Department was was corrupt and, and doing all of this stuff. And um, they, they put the burden back on us. Right. Um, and so we came home and we, we continued to rally. We continued to support one another. We, we got more 
communities involved, uh, other families that had lost uh, loved ones came together and worked on an, an initiative. At that time, it was Initiative 873. We uh, unfortunately weren't successful in that first go-around, but uh, afterwards, we learned some lessons from that. And uh, then we came together with with even more groups, with even more uh, community members, community leaders, even more families. Families have always been at the center of this movement. And we uh, came up, we, we helped uh, draft uh, I-940, which was the initiative that would would help build bridges between our communities and our law enforcement officers. It was going to help uh, increase and improve training of our officers. And mm-hmm. uh, by requiring them to have de-escalation training, first aid training, and mental health training, um, it would require completely independent investigations. For us, that was a real, real important piece because in Jackie's case, the Tacoma Police Department investigated themselves. And, of course, mm-hmm. they found the, the the shooting justified, even though the evidence, as we look at it, there's no way that was justified. There's no way that the officer felt uh, threatened uh, by Jackie. And, and so... <laughs> You know, we we worked with these with several community members, and I appreciate the kind words, Jossie. You, you know, um, but there were so many people that that helped us. The work of, of people like Andre Taylor, and not this time from here in Seattle, from Latino Civic Alliance. Uh, there's just so many. Uh, One America. I, I, the list is too long, you know, to name everybody. But we were we were really blessed. Really blessed to, to have so many uh, help uh, help us out here, and uh, we were able to collect two three hundred and sixty thousand signatures and qualify wow. for the for the ballot. And uh, then uh, an interesting thing happened uh, on the way to election day. During the legislative session, we were approached by a leg- legislators and law enforcement officers who said, "Let's." Let's get down. Let's sit down together. Let's see if we can figure something out here. Let's see if we can we can work together to come up with with some legislation that is going to make our community safer, going to increase accountability for our law enforcement officers, and make it safer for our communities and our our law enforcement alike. And and so that, that, that was new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank I mean, gosh you came up with this idea. Huh? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, but, but it, it, you know, you see around the country all of the, the, the violence and, and the, you know, all of the, 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 the anger that is out there, you know, and rightfully so, rightfully so. Um, but we decided again, following Lisa's uh, cry, for justice for all, we we said no. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work together. We're gonna try and come up with a solution. Uh, and mm-hmm. and and so we we worked with the legislature. We we came up with House Bill thirty oh three um, last le- legislative session that strengthened nine forty. It clarified nine forty, and it and it and it really worked for both communities and law enforcement. 940 was was very much written by the community mm-hmm. and for the community. Uh, 
Um, but it, it, it was missing law enforcement's uh, input. And so 3003 included law enforcement and, and, and it, it was good law. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it was challenged. Of and course. of course, you know, never can be easy. Um, and the Supreme Court threw it out. Um, because they said the legislature didn't follow the proper, uh, process. And so, but even, even, and, and so after that, 940, the, the, the Supreme Court said 940 has to go to the ballot. So we, we put together a ballot campaign. Um, uh, me and, uh, several of, of Jackie's family members, we went on a res de res tour with other tribal leaders visited all 29 tribes in the state of Washington over a 10-day period. And we were able to, uh, uh, along with all of our other uh, colleagues, were able to get 940 passed. That's amazing. Wow. So That's historic. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's amazing because it's the first time, you know, that, that a, a community, uh, the citizens of a state had, has been able to change the law, the laws regarding law enforcement, in, in the state. And so it was, it was, it was an amazing journey. And, and as modest as you are, and I understand because, um, you know, Chester's my big bro. I've known Chester yeah. since I was like 13. Chester actually saved my life a couple of times. I was going to ah. get beat up. <laughs> so I never want to slight Chester. Yeah. But it is fair to say that, um, individually notwithstanding that, yeah, the, definitely is the first time that a, you know, the, the, the state has done this. Um, the voters of a state, but that was led by native people. That was led by the, the Puyallup tribe first and foremost, who took the initiative based upon this horrible, horrible tragedy. And I know that, you know, that Puyallup tribe generally doesn't want to take credit like that. However, the facts are the facts, Tim. And, 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 you know, it was, it wouldn't have happened. How about this? It wouldn't have happened, but for the Puyallup tribe's initiative. It, it wouldn't have happened, but for a lot. There are so many. It He's wouldn't slick. have happened, but for's uh, out there. You know, it, it, it's hard. It really is hard because, you know, it wasn't just because we came in and, and, and got involved. It. This has been. This has been something. This has been a movement that has been going on for years, for decades. You know, yes. since John T. Williams. I mean, you know, we, we have been fighting this fight for a long, long time. And it just happened that, you know, this happened to our community and it got us, it, as Chester, Chester is uh, often says when, when we go around talking to folks about this is, you know, he was one of those folks who, yeah, saw it on the news and, 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 you know, didn't, didn't like it, but mm-hmm. he sat on the, on the couch right. and, and watched it. I was the same way. We di- we didn't get involved in this until it happened to us, mm. and, and and so, you know. But mm-hmm. but when it did happen to us, man, we went all in. We mm. our our tribal council was so supportive. Our community was so supportive. They said, "Yeah, we're gonna do this. Not just for not just for Jackie, but for everybody." Again, justice for Jackie is justice for all. That includes our community members in our tribal communities and in our local communities. It means justice for our law enforcement officers who have been killed in the light of duty because of the anger and everything. It's really means for all. And that's what we, that's what we wanted to do. And, and, and it, it doesn't happen, but for 
all of the every single person who went out there and worked their tail off to collect signatures. If we don't get those 360,000 signatures, we don't get here. Absolutely. If we don't get those 360,000 signatures, we don't get to the table with law enforcement because law enforcement didn't need to come to the table. They had all of the leverage. They had immunity. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't until all of us, the the entire community, Deescalate Washington, the organization that we formed with uh, about 18, 20 other organizations that led the initiative, they were the leaders. I love it. I love it. So true movement of the people. Yes, absolutely. The third anchor point is Standing Rock. Um, do you? I have to ask you, do you see Standing Rock as a success or a failure? Because the pipeline was built, the resistance, some people say, kind of collapsed, and there was all kinds of chaos at the end and so forth. But how do you see Standing Rock of a few years ago? How, how did that play out in your mind? Well, I think it was chaotic. Mm-hmm. And as, as Franz Fanon points out in The Wretched of the Earth, colonialism is a violent process, so any attempt to to decolonize will also be necessarily violent and chaotic, and to expect it to be otherwise is ridiculous. He was speaking about independence in North Africa. So, sure, it was chaotic. Could it be any other way? Um, Was it a failure? Yes, in a direct sense that the pipeline was built. Was there perhaps a kind of failure of tactics? In my opinion, a small one, sure. The pipeline was made possible, this is important to note, because over 90% of it was routed through private lands, and the kinds of permitting and approval required in the United States to route something like that through private lands are minimal. By routing it through private land, they circumvented all the restrictions and all of the kind of due process that would attend building something like that across public lands. So once again, the problem was private ownership, and so at that late date, to say, we don't just object to this pipeline passing here, we object to them in general, that's like, it's, it's, it's not going to be a feasible position from which to extract some sort of political gain, perhaps, in the short term. But in the long term, it was a huge success. For instance, my tribe, which in some ways is still where good ideas go to die. <laughs> I'm really critical of the United States government, and I hope you're critical of the Canadian government. But I'm also critical of my tribal government because it's our job to make sure that they do the best they can. And I have a very high, I hold our elected officials to a very high standard. So when our tribal council approved pipeline leases for a pittance and we had pipelines crossing our reservation, I was deeply disappointed, more disappointed than in the actions of Obama or Trump. After Standing Rock, they couldn't go ahead with those leases. They couldn't go ahead with those agreements because they knew if they did, they would never get reelected. So in that sense, those protests at Standing Rock have yielded fruit and they have changed the way we think about energy and the way that pipeline expansion is progressing or not in the United States. You can't do what you used to be able to do. 
because of Standing Rock. You can't just build it. You can't just lease it. You can't just do that anymore because now there are consequences. So in that sense, Standing Rock was incredibly important and incredibly positive and incredibly effective. So as with anything, it's not just one thing. It's many things. Yeah, and the success continues. The success in that continues right. to reverberate. And you, you, you see people motivated. You see connections that were made, networks developing of indigenous activism and so right. forth that transcend borders and come into our territory here. So I completely agree with you in terms of what the success is and, and it continuing. Oh, it's so cool. And there's one thing I talk about at the end of the book where I talk about this chapter called Digital Indians because I, someone quoted a statistic to me, which I can never verify, so it's not in the book, that Native folk use social media at a rate something like three times the average national average in the states and i thought is that possible and i thought and he explained it to me he worked for the indian health service he said well yeah most native people are transient in the sense that they're couch surfing they're changing apartments they're and most native people are poor they don't have laptops or desktops they only have mobile phones and on those mobile phones they're always talking to each other on on instagram and facebook and twitter and what better medium for geographically dispersed ethnic minorities in North America to connect, to coalesce, to build networks. Social networking has become a kind of fundamental part of, of Native American and Aboriginal political networking. You know this well, I know this well. All of us who are in sort of Native Insta and Native Twitter know this. We are connected in ways that we never were before. Also, a lot of our kids play way too much Fortnite. <laughs> and Minecraft. And Minecraft. Right? So we suffer the same problems. And with that, we will wrap up this double bonus episode with a bonus story at the beginning, even. Uh, as always, if you have thoughts you want to share on, on anything you heard today or anything else, the number to dial 202-999-3991, or you can email me directly, j at bestofleft.com. Thanks for listening. Stay awesome. Stay awesome.